Welcome back to another episode of the Converge podcast, where we help you have a Christian worldview in a post-Christian culture. My name is Steve. My name is Nate. And we're here to put the fun back in fundamentalism. Absolutely. Again, welcome to the Converge podcast. Uh, Today, in seeking to find the intersection of mission and doctrine, we're actually going to talk about the issue of fundamentalism, the fact that there is a good fundamentalism and there is a bad fundamentalism. Fundamentalism is a term right now in our present moment that is being used as an insult for anybody that has disagreements with uh, basically the most famous evangelicals in the country who are obviously seeking to kind of take denominations, whether it be the Southern Baptist Convention, whether it be the PCA, whatever it is, have you, take them in a more leftist, not seeking to be liberals in theology, but rather what I think the goal for many is, is to take a posture of what they think is softness and meekness and nicety towards people who embrace more liberal or progressive views so that they can say, oh, you know, we think you're super nice, and because of that, we're just going to give our lives to Jesus Christ. So anybody that looks at that and says, that's dangerous, there is a slippery slope in Mm -hmm. that you are necessarily going to be introducing liberal theology into the life of the church with that type of posture. They immediately label you as a fundamentalist And they don't mean it in a kind way. They mean it as an insult. When for many years now, um, I have often told people I am a fundamentalist. I do consider myself a fundamentalist. But I understand even in saying that, that I have to explain what I mean by the term fundamentalist uh, to show them the history behind the term. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think uh, definitely with what you just set up, you know, we're happy to be known as fundamentalists. If, if that means that we are standing for conservative doctrine and, and standing for the doctrine of the church and not wavering you know, in a culture that is pressing in on that, hey, sign me up to be a fundamentalist. But we do know that because people mean that as an insult. Um, and then on top of that, there is kind of, I think, some versions of bad fundamentalism that we have seen in history that is out there in the culture now. So it could be helpful for us to kind of explain, okay, what do we mean by good fundamentalism versus mm-hmm. bad fundamentalism? Well, I think right now in our current moment, what's what's also happening is people even don't want to be known as conservative. Yeah. And so they just lump it in. They say, I don't want to be known as a political conservative. And since people don't know what it means to be theologically conservative, I don't want to know, I don't, excuse me, I don't want to be referred to as a conservative at all. Even when realizing that when you reject a a term like conservative, which means to conserve something, you are necessarily opening yourself up to forms of progressivism, no matter what the take is. And so if progressivism as a whole, which it is, is built on faulty foundations or faulty fundamentals, then it is not nice, it is not loving, and it certainly isn't kind with the kindness of Christ to allow yourself to even be thought of as anything, and it does not aid your witness with the world to be known by something that isn't true of you. And so, so many people within evangelicalism right now are conservative, Mm -hmm. they are fundamentalists, but they are terrified that any of what is often been called, anyone in Big Eva, would ever think of them as conservatives 
or fundamentalists. And that's something that we've, I think, just even as a team, we have always embraced things that other people think are going to hurt them, Where whether it be whether they're witness in the culture, whether it be um, what the heads of denominations are going to think or the heads of certain networks yeah. are going to think. We've always gone a different direction because we've had the idea that even if a term has a negative connotation, you can redeem those terms. And that's especially true where fundamentalism is concerned. And, you know, we, we often make the joke, I've heard it from so many different places, that we want to put the fun back in fundamentalism. And that's certainly something that I definitely want to do. But more than that, I want us to have a helpful conversation where we talk about what is good fundamentalism and really in explaining why fundamentalism as a whole or being known as a fundamentalist, why it has become an insult from so many. And the people that use it as an insult, they're, they're fools. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, if you know someone, whether it be a, a big church pastor, small church pastor just trying to be his lackey, denominational head, or somebody at the Gospel Coalition, anybody that uses the term fundamentalist as an insult, um, just never listen to anything they say again. They're putting all their cards on the table. They're fools, mm-hmm. um, and they can't be trusted. Yeah, we do need to understand that that being used as an insult, you're just a fundamentalist. It's a tactic to dismiss, um, honestly, dealing with conservative theology. And that, mm-hmm. that is what it has been since the early 1900s, which we'll talk about, kind of where it originated. And it's how it's being used now. Um, it's, it's a tactic. It's a way to say, ah, those people are kind of rubes who don't know what they're talking about. And it, it's not fair. And so I think uh, talking that through is going to be helpful. And I think that is why it is so vital to force people to deal with specific issues. Calling someone a fundamentalist as an insult is an ad hominem. It is a way to get around having the truth of specific issues exposed. And so in fear of being seen as less scholarly or less intellectual, they don't want it exposed that they believe certain things that liberal scholars would reject or mock in them because they want liberal scholars to approve of them, to appreciate them. For some reason, we've gotten to a place in Christian intellectualism and in the Christian academy where we believe that pandering for the approval of unregenerate liberal scholars is a plus. It's an advantage. It's a win when it's actually just you losing ground. If they accept you for the wrong reasons, then in the end, either you're going to have to reject your conservative theological principles or they're just going to hate you anyway. Mm -hmm. So at what point do you have to tell them the truth on specific issues? So someone belittles you with any type of insult saying, oh, you're joining this group because you embrace this type of doctrine, whatever it is, even if it's the term fundamentalist, refuse to fall for that. Deal with these specific issues. I mean, progressives, even moderates, just call everyone more conservative than they are a fundamentalist. And that signals don't pay attention to them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think just kind of explaining why this is coming up would be helpful too. Like as recently as the last Southern Baptist Convention, oh yeah, uh, the term fundamentalist was thrown around derogatorily. J.D. Greer built his entire <laughs> yeah. church on fundamentalism. Right, he did. Uh, you know, J.D. Yeah, Greer absolutely. went to kind of a middle of the road Southern Baptist church, introduced fundamentalist, mm-hmm. which is what conservative theology is, fundamentalist theology 
embraced the inerrancy of Scripture, embraced inspiration, embraced the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, yeah. on and on and on, the exclusivity of salvation, built it into the megachurch that it is right now, and then chose to use all of the tactics that he used to build his church upon, rejected it as if everyone that embraces the exact tenets of how he built his church is some kind of ham-fisted corn pump, because that's what they mean when they call people fundamentalists. Uh, fundamentalists built the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, in uh, the 90s, it was fundamentalists who mm-hmm. caused the conservative yeah. resurgence to build the Southern Baptist Convention. And so it's turned into this pejorative because the missional posture that's taken in seeing how can we have successful evangelism has chosen to take a tactic much brought by um, Richard Lentz um, in his in his book, um, uh, Fabric of Theology, which was kind of summarized in the third portion of Tim Keller's book, Center Church, and this way of not being conservative or liberal, but finding a way to have mass appeal. And what we don't understand is, yeah, that's exactly what was tried with Friedrich Schleiermacher when he rejected objectivity in the faith. Mm-hmm. And instead of having doctrinal beliefs, he used experience inside of religion in order to try to reach intellectuals with the gospel. All of this has been tried before. It's all failure. And this past year when, uh, you know, it was a lot of J.D. Greer, it was a lot of James Merritt mm-hmm. as he led the resolutions committee. It was this refusal to take prominent stands on false ideologies that are infiltrating Southern Baptist seminaries. And so they chose to turn fundamentalist as a pejorative against conservative theology. It did. So what's happening is we've got these very real concerns in the SBC, liberal ideas, theology, more actually liberal culture tensions, Mm -hmm. but that's going to lead to to liberal theology eventually. Creeping into the SBC, there's a desire in the convention to address that. And a lot of the leaders, instead of addressing that, uh, came back and said the actual problem in the SBC is a rising fundamentalism that just Mm -hmm. wants to war with everyone and fight and cause problems. And what they're doing is they're actually deflecting Mm -hmm. real issues and saying these these conservatives, which is what the SBC is historically and I believe uh, numerically, we are conservative. And what they're trying to do is deflect these real criticisms because it looks bad on them. Mm Because who are the leaders that have allowed these things to creep in? Deflect those criticisms by saying, oh, that's just fundamentalist rubes that are doing that. And so that's where this comes from. But it has a history. And I think the history would be really good to kind of point out because what has happened in the past is just happening again. But actually the original kind of fundamentalism and fundamentalist modernist controversy comes back from the early 1900s. Yeah, well, J.I. Packer points out in his book, Fundamentalism and the Word of God, that fundamentalism finds its roots in the controversy, specifically over the inerrancy of the Mm -hmm. Bible. And so originally, the view that was summarized in the term verbal inspiration of Scripture was the main tenet of what was called fundamentalism. And so that's all fundamentalism was, and then it was teased out to show how the verbal inspiration of Scripture affects your doctrinal beliefs in other areas. And so this marks the Bible as being literally the word of God. And so that was what was considered to make someone a fundamentalist. And Packer does a great job of unpacking, even when he wrote that book, what was becoming an insult to show that that's actually the foundation upon which all of evangelicalism Mm -hmm. was built. And so the term ultimately points 
to what is considered as foundational beliefs or fundamental beliefs upon which all of Christianity is built. And so that's important. And D.A. Carson does a good job in his work of pointing out just what bricks in the foundation of Christianity are necessary for it to still be Christianity. And so for much of the 1900s, uh, the rise of, of really understandings of knowledge or epistemologies from modernism and a rejection of all things supernatural, especially of the origin of man, mm -hmm. the term fundamentalism became a way that those who embraced liberal theology as pointing to an experienced religion, again, like I said, from Schleiermacher, rather than objective truth, to ridicule people as being less intelligent. If they believed in young earth creationism, that meant they were less intelligent. If you believe that the Bible is some sort of supernatural book and that it's actually sourced completely in God, that it's completely inerrant and true, well, then you must be a fundamentalism, a fundamentalist. If you believe in the exclusivity of salvation in Christ, if you, if you don't believe in pluralism, yeah. you must be a fundamentalism. And even th to issues like the virgin birth, mm -hmm. this was completely rejected. Um, with modernist philosophies that were entering into the church. And so it was used as a way to say, you're not as evolved as we are, or better yet for our day, you're not as progressive yeah. as we are. And so you're seeing this idea creep its way back into the church. And so as soon as someone starts insulting people as fundamentalists, we know from history mm -hmm. itself that it is rooted in liberal theology. What's so interesting is in the early 1900s, the issue was a bunch of mainliners, as they became known eventually, mm -hmm. thought that they were protecting Christianity from new scientific advances. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, we, we have all this new scientific knowledge. Now we know these miracles can't be true. Now we know the virgin birth must not have happened. Now we know the Bible can't be inerrant. So they thought they were appealing to culture in a way that would maintain their Christian faith and protect the church from all this new scientific knowledge. Um, so fundamentalists were the ones who stood against that. And we'll, we'll talk about those five fundamentals. But what's interesting is it's not those same issues now, but it's mm -hmm. the same mentality. Right. It's the same mentality of, oh, we've got, like you talked about, we've got to be somewhere in the middle to protect the integrity of the church against a, an increasingly progressive culture. Um, and it's fundamentalists that are going to continue on the church again. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Progressive Christians. And if you look at the turn of, of the 20th century, so right towards the end of the 1800s into the 1900s, it was progressive Christians at that point who are embracing modernist philosophy. So they're bringing in a philosophy from outside of Scripture seeking to apply it to the Bible, they were attempting to get rid of key Christian doctrines yeah. that they thought at the time were incompatible with modern science and secularism. And what's so fascinating is that they did this in an attempt to get a better witness right. with the world yep. around them. Their goal was missional in They're the in their to be winsome. Yeah, they, they wouldn't have used the word missional, but they certainly would have used the word winsome because an unbelieving world yep. won't accept supernaturalism. They yep. won't accept a Bible from God. They won't accept exclusivity. They won't accept these miracles that the scriptures claim to have. So what they did was, is they tried to turn it into mythology that aids us in understanding our spiritual experience with God. And that brought in a host of liberalism that through the 1900s 
had to be fought and killed. Yeah. And, and you know, you, you see what's happening is, is that the next generation of people who live in the benefits that the previous generation in the fight that they had to give to maintain the fundamentals of the faith, they're forgetting just what was won at that point. And so now they're looking at it and they're saying, well, how do we need to change our posture, mm-hmm. our approach, even our doctrinal elements? And so it's not just modernism anymore. It's the children of modernism. Right. It's critical theory. It's aspects of postmodernism coming in through intersectionality and standpoint epistemology. And so instead of saying, how do the fundamentals of the faith aid us in showing the folly of these false ideologies. They're saying, how can we embrace these ideas in order to analyze uh, false doctrine, but what's good doctrine inside of the false so that we can understand what's going on and be a better witness? Well, you can't. Uh, You can't mix truth with error and come out with truth. You will come out with some bastardized error. Mm-hmm. And so what we have to understand is, is when it comes to things like critical race theory, this is not a boogeyman. I saw a video on uh, the Gospel Coalition where Jackie Hill Perry is saying that, you know, all the opponents of this fake critical race theory, they're hurting public school teachers. No, they're not. If that's really your view, either A, you don't understand what critical race theory is, you've completely not paid attention as to what's going on in the school systems in the state of Virginia for the last two or three years, or B, you're trying to bring false ideologies into the church. And so regardless of how great someone's testimony is, um, as hers supposedly is, you have to begin to ask questions. Is this person trustworthy when they're seeking to mix error inside of the truth to downplay an atheistic, materialistic philosophy such as critical race theory? No matter what you think the good ends is going to be, you're not going to get there through faulted means. Critical race theory, being satanic, cannot be mixed with Christian truth. And so if you reject critical race theory right now, you're going to be called a fundamentalist. Even by those within the Southern Baptist Convention, you're going to be told that you're an enemy of evangelism, that you don't want to reach people. No, the reality of what fundamentalism does is it says if we're going to reach people, we need to reach people with the truth of pure Christian doctrine. But with some people who have a false view of fundamentalism, their view of fundamentalism is painted by people in bad suits, mm-hmm. uh, you know, these small sects of conservative Christianity yeah. where women are told that they have to wear dresses and they wear jean skirts everywhere that they go. They're King James only, right. you know, they're separatists in the way that they go. Yeah. And what, I, what we need to unpack for people is the fact that that is not good fundamentalism. Right. Everything, because of the sin of mankind— can be turned into the wrong thing. So you have a great thing, take it liberal, it's a bad thing. You have a great thing, you take it wrongfully conservative, you're still going to get a bad thing because you're mixing in the opinions and ideologies of man. So the goal must be to have really what is the truth. And so talk us through what is the ultimate and original form of fundamentalism yeah, yeah. based on? So historically, the five fundamentalism, what was being pushed back against the modernist view trying to take all the supernatural out of the Bible. Here's the five fundamentals. First is inerrancy of Scripture. And that's really, that's the most important baseline thing because once you don't believe Scripture is true, everything else follows from that. So absolute inerrancy of Scripture. Second, virgin birth of Christ. 
Third is the substitutionary atonement. Fourth is the bodily resurrection of Christ. And originally, the fifth was the authenticity of miracles. And that really was just kind of encapsulating everything that was happening at the time. We're yeah. trying to say, yes, the supernatural is real. God is active in the world. We can't um, just have a materialistic view of the world that, that science is going to explain it all. So that yeah, was the original it, fundamental. It was later changed to the second coming of Christ. Right. That, that was the fifth fundamental. The reason it was changed had nothing to do with them thinking, oh, no, my goodness, miracles may not be authentic. <laughs> no, rather, the first four and even the second coming of Christ yeah. are built on an assumption yeah. of the miraculous. So there's a presupposition from Scripture of the miraculous being possible if those things are true. But the reason at the outset of forming these fundamentals of the faith that the fifth one on the authenticity of miracles was because it was a direct response yep. to the overwhelming influence of modernist philosopher David Hume. Hume rejected the possibility of miracles. And so because of that, he therefore rejected any claim of miraculous event, events ever being possible. And his specific target, as all satanic attacks are, his specific target was the to reject the biblical claims of the miraculous without offering any evidence to the contrary, and even stating that he refused to consider the evidence for the miraculous mm -hmm. in the biblical claims. Now, he did this by creating an epistemology or a system of explaining how knowledge works that states that if it cannot be experienced and recreated, then it can't be real. Well, miracles fit that. So he would say they can't be real. Therefore, since the miraculous defies what he considered to be the irrefutable laws of nature, they cannot be real. And so what was developed out of this was in kind of an ontology of measuring human experience that stated that even if something seems miraculous, since it can't possibly be miraculous, then the issue is that we haven't developed measurements that help us in understanding how it works. And this infiltrated Christianity and really the understanding of how God works, and it affects us to this day and how many scholars understand the works of God within creation. And so that idea of the miraculous is ultimately what we're dealing with. Can God enter into creation, subvert the natural order, and cause something to happen? Well, the Scripture not only says that it did happen, there's historical evidence to show that these things did happen, and the purpose behind the miraculous was specifically to show that something unnatural is occurring. Therefore, we need to pay attention to what is going on. And so people who held these fundamentals of the faith, they were just dubbed as you guys yeah. are the fundamentalists. They're fundamentalists. And I, th I think what's important to understand is so originally uh, it's these these issues of the miraculous and the inerrancy of Scripture. Now, is that all there is to Christian doctrine? Mm -hmm. Of course, there's many essential Christian doctrines that, that that doesn't even touch. But what was happening was these were the issues that were specifically under attack at the time. And wh why would you, why, what would denying the miraculous aid you in ultimately getting towards yeah. there is no God? Yeah. That was Hume's entire yeah. uh, point. Hume was an atheist, and he set out specifically to show I don't believe that there is a God. Here's why you shouldn't believe that there is a God. Atheistic philosophers are evangelists. And so people look to Christians and they say, stop trying to turn people towards your faith. Everybody does this. 
And atheists are more aggressive and more ruthless than any other group in the world in trying to proselytize people over to their way of thinking. And David Hume did this to such a degree that he had a great effect that even though science has really caught up with Christianity in proving that there are elements that you cannot understand. And William Lane Craig does a great job in showing this because Hume's ultimate, uh, and I know this is going to kind of take us off, but (laughs) Hume's ultimate thought was that if you cannot measure and explain something with natural law, it can't be possible. William Lane Craig does a great job. He's a classic apologist. He does a great job in pointing out that there are many things that we accept as objectively true and as being real, that we cannot explain where they came from, how they necessarily function. Love is one of those things. We cannot understand love. But my my favorite thing is William Lane Craig uh, lists a couple, but my favorite one is William Lane Craig points out that science itself cannot ultimately be explained. It it can't. It is not a measurable thing to Mm -hmm. say that science exists. And so right there on a basis, that is why Hume's philosophy isn't talked about as much, because ultimately it's been defeated. Well, taking, taking fundamentalism into kind of our age, here's what I think is interesting, is ultimately uh, fundamentalism was about defending the doctrines that were under attack. Mm-hmm. All right. So any, anyone can affirm a, a statement of Christian faith that's not under attack from the culture. It's very easy to do. It yeah. doesn't cost you anything. In the, at the turn of the century, the fundamentalists were willing to defend the doctrines that were under attack. Well, I think that is very much related to what makes one a fundamentalist today or to be accused of a fundamentalist oh, yeah. today is you're willing to defend um, vigorously the doctrines that are actually under attack from the culture. Well, and what's fascinating is a lot of the battlegrounds are in the fields of the academy. It's in scholarship. And the modernist controversy of the miracles, whereas kind of prominent public philosophers or philosophers are concerned, that's not an issue anymore. Nobody's really paying attention yeah. to that. The controversial philosophies of our day are more materialist in nature, and it is critical theory. It mm-hmm. is critical race theory. It is standpoint epistemology. It is the yeah. tenets of postmodernism and legitimating knowledge. And what you're seeing is, and I even saw this on a podcast last week, where, um, and a lot of people in our church listen to this, so I should probably mention it, Doctrine and Devotion, uh, Joe Thorne and Jimmy Fowler, they did an episode of their podcast about deconstruction. And I get excited whenever I see that because that's actually a field that I studied in my postgraduate degrees. And so um, I listened to that podcast, and they were talking about how a singer had said we need to make war on deconstruction. They set out for over a half hour trying to explain why he was wrong But in seeking their explanation, they presented themselves as experts on this so that people should listen to them. They don't even understand what deconstruction is. They got all of the definitions wrong. He totally misrepresented the work of Derrida in his book, Grammatology. They totally misunderstand what deconstruction means, and they conflated it with reformation. Deconstruction and reformation are not synonyms because deconstruction is is a never-ending process of literally deconstructing any potential claim to truth. And so evangelicals now, they're all operating, for the most part, above their pay grade, trying to present themselves as experts when they don't even read the material. They haven't even understood it. 
And for so much of, of uh, whereas critical race theory, progressive ideology, progressive politics even are concerned, these guys literally think that by pretending that the fundamentals of the faith aren't that vital in an evangelical witness to the culture around them, we have to look at it and say, not only do I believe the inerrancy of Scripture is true, I believe, because it's not about the miracles anymore, it's about the propositional truths inside of Scripture. I believe the propositional truths that the Scripture sets forward. Mm -hmm. That's where we are. And so that's why you can have someone like Danny Aiken, like Karen Swallow Pryor, who will say, I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Great. Let's look at a few of the propositional truths of Scripture, and let's deal with that in the reality of what is true and what is false. That's the conversation that needs to be had. And what will happen is you will see that Danny Aiken is a politician, and so he's just kind of going to be milk toast on a lot of things. But people like Karen Swallow Pryor are postmodernists. She has fully given in and shown plenty of evidence that she has bought into deconstructionist philosophy, and she's allowing it to invade her view of theology to where she truly believes that the answer for the future of, uh, of evangelicalism is destroying the faulty systems of truth that we've developed doctrinally. And so as you can see, being called a fundamentalism, fundamentalist isn't the worst thing that you can be called. What we should be more afraid of is that we're called deconstructionists, that we're called postmodernists. But we don't want to say that because we're afraid that it's going to hurt our witness with people for them in the academy. But when you're like us and you're at the church level, you see the malignant tumor mm -hmm. that is being caused in the education system. And specifically, you see the malignant tumor of really the spineless men that we're producing at the seminary level because they're not being taught to defend the faith. Uh, fundamentalists are not people with whack theology of King James onlyism of you know separationism. Yeah. To be a fundamentalist is literally to embrace propositional truth at a biblical level to where we are willing to fight for right. reality, even if it hurts my reputation. And I think that's where we are, specifically where the SBC is concerned. And I know we've taken some hits where our rep and our street cred in the SBC is concerned, but that's okay. I would rather be on the side of truth. Yeah, I think that that's an important distinction to kind of make and then get us into evaluating good and bad fundamentalism. Is Yes, it, it originated with these, these five fundamentals. You can take that into the current time and see, okay, now it is a, ultimately a doctrinal issue. Are mm -hmm. we willing to defend doctrine? But then... There is a spirit to it. There is a spirit of, I'm willing to actually defend doctrine. And by defend, that means I might have to shoot some wolves. I might right. have to identify by name people who are tearing down the church. I'm going to have to have a spirit of actually contending for the faith. And that is what will get you labeled a fundamentalist. Well, and it's as simple as looking at um, James Merritt, who has so many problems that he's not dealing with, um, is that he, from the stage, looked at the crowd in last year's Southern Baptist Convention when he was rejecting having any type of mention of critical race theory in the resolutions this past year, he looked at the crowd and he said verbatim, if some of you cared as much about evangelism as you cared about critical race theory, then the, you know, then the world would be coming to faith in Christ. And that is such an, just such an error in judgment. Caring about mixing critical race theory with the doctrines of Scripture 
is caring about evangelism. Because if you take an impure gospel into a world that desperately needs the pure gospel, you're not going to bring them to faith in Christ. And we need fundamentalists to hold leaders like that accountable. But what they seek to do is silence you by basically convincing, excuse me, convincing you that you need their approval. You don't need their approval. You need the approval of Scripture. You need the approval of God. All right. So let's talk about just a bunch of issues. And I'm going to set up these issues, and then we're going to talk about how there's a a bad fundamentalism related to this and then a good fundamentalism. So the first one I want to talk about, and this just flows from everything we've talked about so far, is doctrine. Mm -hmm. So I think doctrinally, uh, what I would agree is bad fundamentalism has been associated with um, very strict dispensationalism. Mm -hmm. I would even say an obsession with um, eschatology. Eschatology, and yeah. I don't just mean like we should all, in some sense, care a great deal well, about it, it, eschatology. I think, I think there's two. There's an interesting difference to point out. There's a difference between eschatology and obsession with the end times. Yes, yes. Eschatology is the study of the future as presented by God in Scripture. End times obsession is an obsession with a Mad Max like, uh, you know, apocalyptic dystopia. Yeah. Where, where, you know, people are bringing back guillotines and, you know, people are getting tattoos on their foreheads. And I know when I, when I was younger, we, you know, there would be, um, uh, end times, uh, kind of revivals where they would bring up these massive charts. And, you know, we had an evangelist that would come and he would bring newspapers and he would be pointing out, okay, this is what happened with Arafat last week. Here's where that is in (laughs) biblical prophecy. And this obsession with Jack Van Impey, who's constantly saying, oh, the return is is next week. And I remember in 1988, there was a book called (laughs) 88 Reasons Jesus Will Return in 1988. And when that didn't work out in 1989, there were 89 (laughs) reasons that Jesus is returning in 1989. And, you know, there was a huge one in 1994 where some people in the church that I was at literally thought that this guy had had figured out a mathematical formula to when Jesus was going to return. And they actually had dinners on that night. And I remember talking to my parents and I was like, is it really going to happen? And my dad assured me, he said, if they think he's coming back tonight, he probably ain't coming back tonight. And even if he does, it'll be all right. And so there's this obsession thinking that the world is going to go to hell in a handbasket. And there's no hope for the future of actually you know, gaining ground where culture is concerned, really seeing people's lives change with the gospel. And so, yeah, that's bad fundamentalism. That's bad. And then the other part, I would say very briefly, strict dispensationalism. And what I mean by that is a dispensationalism that is just trying to divide up um, the church and the history of Israel and all the different segments of scripture and just divide it up starkly to the point where this is this is simplifying something that is way more complicated. Mm-hmm. You point where you end up with two different paths of salvation, right? Which scripture is one unified story of God redeeming people through Jesus. Um, very clear that that is that is critically important. That God is always saved um, by grace through faith. And, and that's the, you don't that, want to break that. And up. it's the same thing, but on the other side, it's this acceptance of false doctrine and false yeah. ideologies and trying to mix it with the truth of the gospel. And anytime you mix truth with error, you're going to get something bad. Yeah. So I'll just say that whole, that those systems that is tied into end time stuff, like that can be bad fundamentalism. Yeah. And if that is known as fundamentalism, we want to say, actually, that's just an offshoot of 
um, we would say poor theology. That's not fundamentalism. Good fundamentalism, and this is really key, champions doctrine and champions that doctrine matters. That's the spirit that we want to have. Uh, doctrine matters, and it always must be defended. Yeah. Always. Um, they, you know, that's why, you know, that, that phrase in the New Testament, apologia, making a defense, is so vital for us to understand. It's so vital for us to understand that in Jude, uh, we're told that basically he uses a pugilistic metaphor to say we're going to have to fight for the faith. Yeah. We're going to have to defend truth. And that is the call of Christians. You know, it's definitely the call of pastors, but it's the call of Christians as a whole is there are so many that are going to seek to bring in theology that is wrong and bad and it perverts the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, when you think about Mormonism, when you think about Jehovah's Witnesses, mm -hmm. these are dubbed as cults because they pervert the gospel. They pervert good doctrine. Well, the same thing goes on in progressive agendas. Uh, J.I. Packer even says um, that fundamentalism is just a fight in order to preserve the truth of Christianity. And we must be willing to engage in that fight. It is always worth fighting over. And I would even go as far as to say fundamentalism in fighting is worth upsetting people over. Mm -hmm. And I know we've done that. We, you know, we've we've had people upset with us. I know you've had people upset with you um, over over certain theological principles. But understand that an unbelieving world, Paul warned us about this in 1 Corinthians. They're going to look at our faith and they're going to say it's foolish. But instead of just using the word foolish now, they use the word hateful. Mm -hmm. And so many of the doctrines that we have are going to be called hateful. And I don't understand the strategy of telling people they need real life change, but then basically embracing the same ideologies that they're forming, their foundation for understanding human knowledge yeah. When you embrace the same one they have, they don't need any life change. You're the one that is changing. Absolutely. And then another piece that I am always eager to add to that discussion is um, if you just accept a doctrine, but you're not willing to fight for it, don't be surprised when your kids don't accept right. it. Right. Uh, and, you know, you need your kids need to see that you are willing to really risk yep. for the truth of Scripture so that they will know that you truly believe it. When the next generation sees you willing to compromise over key doctrines of the faith, understand they're going to further compromise yeah. because they don't think you take it seriously. So a fundamentalist is one, one who is not satisfied with someone telling you, oh, that seminary professor affirms all our statements of faith. That's not good enough. No. I want to see them fighting for them. Not anymore, right? And uh, I will say, uh, last week, Jason Allen, who's the president of Midwestern, he had a very good uh, speech at Southern where he said just that. He said it's not enough to just simply affirm our doctrine. We have to be willing to contend and fight for it. Yeah. That's fundamentalist. That's fundamentalism all the way. Um, let's talk about the issues in fundamentalism where it can get a bit legalistic yeah. um, versus what real obedience is under good fundamentalism. Bad fundamentalism is legalism. Mm -hmm. It's this idea that there are specific things in your life where they create new rules. Legalism is not holding someone accountable for obedience to Scripture. It can be looking at someone and saying, obeying the commands of Scripture gains you righteous footing where Christ is concerned. No, this is an issue of sanctification. Living the new life is going to have fruit of salvation 
That is obedience to the clear commands of God's word. But what happened in fundamentalism is, is it became about a way to dress. Yeah. Because fundamentalists dress this way. Men have to wear suits and ties, you know, to come into the church. Women cannot wear pants because that's just bad. When you know, women wearing pants makes them look masculine. So it's it's always negative. Um, and you know, and so the women have to wear dresses. There were churches that would have um, special Sundays where a barber chair would be on the stage. And part of their repentance for sins was they had to go forward and there was a barber ready. I mean, this really happened where these guys were getting haircuts in the church to show their repentance of sins. That is legalism. And there's no other way for us to put it. Yeah. It became about what kind of music, you know, is played in church or even what you can do in your home as far as music and and movies and things like that. You can't, you can't go to the movie theater because someone, (laughs) you know, someone might think you're going to a bad movie and you don't want anybody thinking that about you. And, and the funny thing about in fundamentalism, and I was raised a little bit in this type of culture. What was fascinating about it is, is no one could ever keep the rules because they were all so confusing. <laughs> yeah. So you couldn't go to a movie theater to see a movie because someone might you know, misconstrue that you're going yeah. to see an R-rated movie. But you could go to the video store and rent a movie, even though the same judgment could be taking place sense. there. None of them ever yeah. made any sense. So legalism is importing rules. It is taking things that might be a conscience issue for mm-hmm. you, which, hey, that can be legitimate for you, but then imposing that on others. And that is where fundamentalism can but have a bad rap. We're seeing the opposing side of that. We're seeing good fundamentalism take place now where people are being called to biblical morality, yes, that's the especially other side. where sexuality is concerned. Um, it's good to call people to holiness. Yeah. It's good to call people to obey God in every matter that he has set forward for us in Scripture. That is not bad fundamentalism. That's good fundamentalism. Often bogus charges of fundamentalism are labeled when you're just trying to be wise and obey God. Yeah. You know, um, if if you are calling someone to repent of sexual sin, you might be labeled a fundamentalist, especially if you're being very clear that homosexuality is incongruent with the gospel. It's incongruent with scripture, that somebody needs to repent of homosexuality, even of same-sex desires, that it's something you must struggle against. Well, now that is labeled as negative fundamentalism, when in all actuality, that's the good type of fundamentalism. Yep. That's not legalism. That's mm-hmm. biblical. Yeah. That's just devout biblicism right there. So we just want to be people who obey God. Um, John fourteen fifteen. if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Very simple. That's simple. Very simple. Um Ironically, something that I've seen is bad fundamentalism can get involved in easy believism, like we talked about in the last episode, mm-hmm. which you wouldn't think really goes with the legalism. It's I don't know strange. how that happens, yeah, but it does. Well, what happens is inside of bad <laughs> forms of fundamentalism, there became almost a, tour, a two-tiered system um, of salvation. So there's the salvation that gets you into heaven, yeah. and then there's another salvation that gets you into um, basically holiness <laughs> on earth. Yeah. And so what happens is, is they have easy believism because they want numbers were very important inside right. of bad fundamentalism. Whereas like we got to get as many people to pray the prayer of salvation as yeah. possible to the extent where they basically turned everybody into used car salesmen yeah. to where they would tell everybody, OK, if you pray this, you will be eternally secure in your faith, regardless of what happens later. But <laughs> almost in likening it to prosperity theology, mm-hmm. then if you went to church you were told if you want the blessings of God, yeah. 
you will seek to be holy in this world. So if you don't seek holiness, you get heaven. Yeah. If you seek holiness, you get the favor of God in this world. And so it was basically a caste system that almost, it didn't, but it almost caused me a crisis of faith when I was a teenager because I didn't see the point of mm-hmm. obedience because right. I was like, maybe I don't need the favor of God in this yeah. life. I think that, that is such an important distinction. So that really is rotten uh, fundamentalism. Oh, absolutely. We, we do not mean that when we're talking about fundamentalism. What we do mean is absolutely living in the grace of God, but having that grace fuel us to a life of obedience and holiness, um, yeah. apart from legalism. That is good fundamentalism. Yeah, let's keep us going and yep. talk about intellectualism. That bad fundamentalism, and we do have to be honest with this, mm-hmm. bad fundamentalism is yeah. anti-intellectualism. That there is a pride for many bad fundamentalists, and this has happened especially in the 70s and 80s, yeah. where being uninformed was a good thing. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I don't I don't get into deep, <laughs> deep doctrines. You know, let's just keep it simple. You know, if it was yeah. good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. And that that is a bad way of living your life. And this is really exposed in KJV onlyism. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but it's not limited to KJV onlyism. It's really any form of discipleship that tells you don't think too hard about your faith yeah. and trains you that anyone that is that is studying theology, anyone that is seeking the intellectual side of the faith um, is doing a bad thing. And that, that, that just that just takes you into places where you'll ask questions that you shouldn't ask. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's this fear. And I think it may have happened during modernism where it is a fear that if you actually study, if you actually look into science, yeah. if you actually understand things of how the world works, then you will leave the faith. And that's bad intellectualism because uh, the scriptures can hold up. Yeah. I think a big part of that anti-intellectualism is a rejection of church history mm-hmm. or a not a not being concerned with church history. So when you're at a place where you just don't care what our forefathers thought about right. anything, you're really quickly going to get into a very, very weird place where, where you're just being anti-intellectual. Yeah. There, there is good intellectualism oh, though, that, that we want to affirm. Now, we would say it, it is true that we need to be properly skeptical of secular intellectualism. Absolutely. Um, there, the scripture is clear. Someone who does not affirm that Jesus is God is a fool. So we need to, t- good fundamentalism takes that understanding into the intellectual arena, but doesn't reject intellectualism. Well, and I think the point there is, is that is the supernatural aspect of faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, when you treat salvation as though it is an intellectual exercise, you miss what's actually going on in what happens when yeah. someone has faith in Jesus Christ. It's not intellectually assenting to faith. What it is, is mm-hmm. you yes. being brought by the Holy Spirit to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So that puts us on a footing where secular intellectuals are not trusted because they have not been regenerated. They have to be looked at and and studied to say, is what you're saying going to align with the reality of what the Holy Spirit is doing inside of me? But we can't make what the Holy Spirit does inside of us into some subjective exercise. We have to understand that God has bound himself to working in our lives as to what aligns with Scripture. And so that's where good intellectualism comes from. Good intellectualism is always brought about by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit 
in the life of the believer to search the scriptures as the primary source, as the primary tool and force by which the Holy Spirit brings truth into our lives, but then actually causes us to grow in our faith to where we can learn to refute secular intellectuals. And we can affirm that all truth is God's truth. And so there are things to learn about God's world outside of um, people who are redeemed in Christ. It's just you have to have that proper fundamentalist understanding that of skeptics. Yeah. And many Christian intellectuals have failed the church. And I think one of the ways in which fundamentally they failed the church is we have separated out Christian intellectuals from the church. Yeah. Um, Owen Strawn and Kevin Van Hooser have done a great job in their book, you know, um, Pastor as Public Theologian, to point out that when we separated the academy out from the work in the church, we really did a great disservice to the people of the church because basically Christian academics, even in the seminary level, they do not see themselves as being accountable. They view themselves oftentimes, and this is what is a bad form of intellectualism, as being in an ivory tower. And this is very real because these Christian intellectuals, they will disconnect themselves from the life and discipleship of the church, and they fail us because they don't fight for the church. That's so key. And that is because that is a um, hallmark of academia, um, unfortunately also Christian academia, even though it shouldn't be, is that you don't fight other academics. You just have discussions and you bring everything to the table. And that's how academia works. That doesn't work when the doctrine of the church is being challenged. So Christian academics should be fighting for the doctrines of the church if they had a fundamentalist spirit. And so many people don't understand that the roots of fundamentalism are actually in Christian academia. They don't understand this. The roots of fundamentalism were actually laid And what's probably the most uh, liberal (laughs) seminary that we have right now, Princeton Theological Seminary. So in the late 1800s, there was a a leader of that seminary. He was the president of the seminary. His name was Charles Hodge. And many people, and Hodge was a Presbyterian, but many people look to Charles Hodge and say he was the father, the true father of fundamentalism. Hodge engaged the intellectual community that was at that time being so saturated with modernist thought he sought to engage it with conservative theology. He's the one that actually formed what was called the Princeton Review in print, and he posted peer-reviewed articles that literally had the agenda of engaging the fundamentals of the faith, opposing modernist philosophers. And so he was, Charles Hodge was, he's one of my heroes, he was the original culture warrior. He defended, and he mm-hmm. has a three-volume systematic theology. It's one of my favorite systematic theologies. He was a culture warrior in fighting for the validity of six-day creationism based on his treatment of the Bible as factual. And so Hodge submitted, and again, this was in the late 1800s, that there was no conflict between the, science, the sciences and the Bible. And the last 125 years since the death of Charles Hodge, As that time has gone by, his assertions have been found to be true. Our scientific understanding has finally caught up to where the great theologian Charles Hodge was over 125 (laughs) years ago. And so when you think about that, we have to realize that oftentimes the cultures that we're fighting for, it's going to outlive us. It's going to go beyond the span of our lives. But someone like Charles Hodge, who fought for the faith 125 years ago, longer ago than that, actually, 
the fruits of his labors are still being experienced today, even though so many don't even know who he is. And that's in Christian academics, we have to understand secular intellectualism is usually a fraud. If it goes against the truths of Scripture, it is a fraud. People who don't believe that Jesus is king are fools, period. I don't care if they have an MDiv. I don't care if they have a PhD. I don't care if they have some type of doctorate I don't even know about. We have to understand that the base level, the fundamental, is that Jesus is king. And if you don't submit yourself and your academic uh, pursuits under that, you ultimately are going to be found as a fool. And that's why we shouldn't blindly trust non-Christian intellectuals. Charles Hodge showed us this. Charles Hodge showed us how to do this. He did not trust the newest forms of ideology that were coming Mm -hmm. from his peers, from people who were at other academic institutions and were being lauded as this is the most brilliant person of our generation. Charles Hodge would measure what they said against the truths of Scripture, say, if it doesn't align with this, I'm going to fight against it. So let's knock out a couple other things, because I know we've been going for a little while, but uh, I think we can do it. I think it's safe to say this might be a two-parter. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, separationism. Mm-hmm. So I think bad fundamentalism is known as we're going to separate from everyone and kind of end up in our own little secluded, like almost what ends up being cults sometimes, mm-hmm. or at, at the least um, communes or just, you know, we, we can't be seen with him because he mm-hmm. does this thing. We can't be seen with him because he does this thing. And they just, they separate over everything. And ultimately it's second and third degree separation. Yeah. That's what they'll call it. They divide over everything. And here's, here's the trick, the tricky part is we all separate over things. Yeah. Like we all have issues that are of such importance that we have to be cautious. There about. are good forms of separationism. Yeah. We talked about that when we did our episode on gender insanity. Yeah. There's good forms of separationism. I would even go as far as to say there's there are good good types of second degree separationism. Exactly. So the distinction really is just having good judgment. So mm-hmm. bad fundamentalists separate over silly, non-essential things. Good bad fundamental- fundamentalists will separate um, away from you if you use an NIV. <laughs> right. You know, ba- bad right. fundamentalism yeah, exactly. will separate away from you if you're a woman who wears pants. Yeah. Bad separationism will separate away from you if you sing Hillsong. Yeah. I, I said that. Yeah. Okay. There is a bad form of fundamentalism going on right now where music is concerned and we're fighting battles that are really stupid about music and we should probably stop it because that's turning into the third fourth fifth sixth degree separationism where it's like if you sing this praise chorus in your church on sunday mornings well you're kneeling at the altar of benny hinn somehow (laughs) and that's really stupid and people should stop saying it i agree so good fundamentalism would be saying hey that person seems to be accepting uh, lgbt ideology we need to be careful about that because of the destruction it is bringing into the church and specifically our kids. So, of course, there are things to separate over. Good fundamentalism was seen, and of course, I got to go to history again. Um, One of the students of Charles Hodge, who actually was a professor at Princeton Seminary, Jay Gresham Macon. So many people where fundamentalism is concerned, um, they know about Macon because he wrote Christianity and Liberalism. Wonderful work, but he actually Mm -hmm. started Westminster uh, seminary, yeah. which now is a more liberal seminary. But uh, J. Gresham Macon started Westminster with the purpose of using academic pursuits to engage and fight against 
liberal theology. And so Macon saw no potential for unity with mm-hmm. those who yeah. um, denied the fundamentals of the faith. And so Macon set up what is good fundamentalism saying, you can't mix truth with error. If people are denying the fundamentals of the faith, you do need to separate out from them. He said that liberal theology uses traditional Christian terminology, but changes the definitions completely. And he viewed them as a cancerous cult. So he said, let's separate ourselves out from them and start our own stuff. And that is good fundamentalism. And we're failing our kids with that right now because we think it's bad fundamentalism to separate our kids from bad school systems that are seeking to indoctrinate them with not just false ideologies, but sexual immorality. Actually, that's good fundamentalism because it's saying you need to fill yourself with truth. Yep. So good separation is just a a matter of wisdom and judgment, but fundamentalists embrace that. Yeah, I've talked to a few parents that were really shocked um, that they were allowing their kids to be um, kind of uh, influenced by false ideologies and sexual perversion because they just simply never thought about it before. Um, We have to get away from the notion that separating yourself out in certain ways is bad. No, it's actually good. All right. Fundamentalist spirit. That's kind of it's an overall thing, but I I think it's important to acknowledge because that is actually behind some of the criticism mm-hmm. saying, ah, oh, your spirit's too fundamentalist. But actually, I want to say, yes, there is a bad way that can be, but there also is a very, very good way that we can have a fundamentalist spirit. So bad fundamentalism, similar to the bad separationism, wants mm-hmm. to completely retreat from culture, have have no knowledge of it, no understanding of it only condemn it mm-hmm. which there's a good way to condemn bad things but oh, yeah. but they just you know they're not interested in fighting a culture war they're interested in separating from the culture good fundamentalism actually is interested in meaningfully and smartly fighting a culture right. war bad fundamentalism um, moves to montana right and sets up a compound yeah all right that's bad fundamentalism and we laugh because we've actually seen people do that um, that's bad fundamentalism. Um, it's not bad fundamentalism, though, to look for an area with a good Bible-believing church and say, I'm going to move to that area for that specific sure. purpose. It's not bad fundamentalism to look, let's say you need a, a good area where people homeschool and there's a good group of homeschool families or there's a good Christian school where your kids can plug into a good Christian community because of a good Christian church, that's good fundamentalism. Good fundamentalism looks to find a place where you can put roots in, where you can fight a culture war, where you can say, we're going to disciple our kids, we're going to be discipled, we're going to make disciples, and we're going to choose this as our ground zero. Good fundamentalism is why world missions exists. Mm -hmm. Because we go to specific areas for the purpose of planting the gospel. Good fundamentalism will send someone into an urban area, into the city, to plant the gospel in that city, even while you might be surrounded by people who don't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've got to realize that good fundamentalism is always ready for a good fight. You avoid the bad fights. You avoid the meaningless fights. You avoid the fights that aren't going to gain the gospel any ground. And so you do use wisdom in waging and saying, 
What hills do I die on? But here's the deal. Good fundamentalism is willing to die on a few hills. It is willing to engage. And right now we're in an era of evangelicalism where there's no fight. Those whom we have put in charge, those whom we have made our leaders, they're not willing to fight for anything. There are no hills that they're going to die on. And I'm probably going to massacre this analogy that I saw a little while ago. (laughs) But uh, there's like this three-step process right now in evangelicalism on when to know to fight. It starts with, it's not ready to fight. Starts with, that's not specifically an issue that we need to fight about. And then step three is, oh no, the fight's over and we never engaged it. We lost. Yeah. Right now in evangelicalism, we do need to recover a bit of the fighting spirit that yeah. existed with men like Jay Gresham Macon, with men like Charles Hodge, even with men like J.I. Packer. Yeah. Um, we have to be willing oftentimes to be labeled as people who are fundamentalists, even if it's as an insult, because we know we're on the side of God. The culture, culture war needs to be fought in a clever manner. Yeah, good fundamentalism is not seeking to flee the culture. It's seeking to challenge it, which is also different from seeking to just be a part of it right. and like let it consume us. It's seeking to challenge it and ultimately to Christianize it. Right. And but so there, there is a spirit of it's not. And this is engagement's not a bad word, but it sometimes can be too lax. Right. We're not merely engaging it. We're trying to Christianize it, of which course. takes it's some like, fight. If if your goal isn't to see everyone in your area become a follower of Jesus Christ. You're nuts. Yeah. Like you're, you're disobeying the Great Commission. And I remember I challenged someone over the issue of cultural engagement and, and looking at society and saying, we want it to be as Christian as possible. And they said, oh, how could you possibly say that? That's a crazy vision. I asked them a question. I said, well, what do you do if the president becomes a Christian because you gave him the gospel? How do you disciple them to lead? Yeah. What do you point them to? As the basis for what righteousness looks like, well, you use the scripture, you use God's law, you use the fundamentals of the faith. Right. And so, yes, our goal is to Christianize everything and everyone through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what I see as a fundamental of the Great Commission. Yeah. I think fundamentalists believe strongly that if it's Christian, it ought to be better. That's right. And I am very proud to carry that mantle. That's right. We were given that mantle <laughs> a long time ago uh, by Dr. Jerry Falwell. And some people don't want to be looked at as Dr. Falwell, but if I if I if you know if I'm accused of being a man like Dr. Falwell, even if it's a misunderstanding of what my theology actually is, I feel like yeah. I'm in pretty good company. Yeah. Last thing I would say that just ties right into fundamentalist spirit, but we, we addressed it earlier, but I think we need to land here is uh hopeful eschatology mm-hmm. is a sign of good fundamentalism. Absolutely. Uh, if if you really believe that the world is a toilet and you're just waiting for Jesus to flush it, then you're never going to gain any ground and you probably aren't going to reach anybody with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, we can bicker and and disagree over some of the um, particulars where eschatology yeah. is concerned, but we have to have a resurgence of hopeful eschatology inside of Christianity, that the Bible gives us a great commission as though we have the potential to fulfill it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the book of Revelation, for all of the visions that it gives us, it does give us an end where God sets up his holy city on this earth, yeah. where everything will be refined, where the gospel will reach every nation, and we will see the world come to faith in Jesus Christ. And we need to be hopeful for that day. I think a fundamentalist spirit like sees that and says, yeah, that's a hope, but it's also something I am eager 
to engage in as I go out into the world. Absolutely. Well, I hope that uh, today we were able to help you put some fun back in fundamentalism, maybe calm some of your fears of being called to fundamentalist. <laughs> I am a fundamentalist. I know Nate is a fundamentalist. And thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, if you can, uh, give us a, a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you use. If you're able to leave a review, please do that as well. But until next time, thanks for joining us. 